Hi, and welcome to Behind the Headlines with me, Neil Bradley, and my co-host, Joe Quinn. Hi there. Today is Sunday, June 3rd, 2018, and we're going to be looking back at the week that was and some of the crazy things happening on this planet, which is in turmoil, in transition, ever-changing, chaotic, yet there's order. There's order coming out of it, too. Um, it's definitely a changing times. So, uh, I mean, obviously there's big stuff happening at, in, in high places, but it's also obviously translating out into every sphere of human life uh, on this planet, even in the weather, which has been crazy, um, particularly in Europe this last week, some insane weather going on. So we're going to start off, I suppose, with the big news in Europe, Europe. Um, the situation in Italy, especially, mm -hmm. it's not just there. It, Italy, what's going on in Italy is really the latest in a, in a cascade of things. You could argue it goes back to Greece in 2015 mm -hmm. and even earlier. Um, so let's just recap then. So the Italians have elections in March, I think. Um, right. The two biggest parties, which form a majority between them, are the so-called extreme left and right, and thus continuing Europe's populist wave. It, populist is a dirty word, apparently. But it's a very dirty <laughs> word, populist. It means pop it means they were popular. <clears throat> it means it well, it's fundamentally anti-democratic. Oh, hang on a minute. Populist means basically of the people. So it's fundamentally democratic, at least, you know, to the letter of democracy but when democracy uh actually breaks out it's a crisis uh, yeah it's a crisis for the people in positions of power that somehow or other the will of the people or at least a section of the people the more rabbly types percentage or or, or uh you know demographic in a country uh they basically um came, they came out of somewhere because they didn't exist beforehand right I know they like just the, came out the ground or yeah the nationalistic ones they came in from the fringes, right? But they're extremists. But there's enough of them to actually, at least, well, usually not to form an actual government, a majority government. But as, hap as happened in Italy, it's a coalition uh, between, and it's a strange mix in a certain sense because you've got the right wing, the right wingers, basically the conservatives, uh, and then the uh, the I suppose they're, they're they're a new breed. It's it's they're basically Eurosceptic. They're not necessarily right-wing conservatives. They're they can be lefties as well. You know, it's um, but I think well, I suppose technically they would be conservative in a certain sense. They'd be nationalistic. Obviously, anybody who's Eurosceptic, i.e., they don't want to be in Europe, they want to leave Europe, or they have those ideas, uh, would tend to be conservative. So, but this the the party that uh, the two parties that have come together. I suppose most the, one of them's traditional conservative, this, and the other one is the kind of new kind of anti-immigrant. You know, because there's a there's a division between conservatives and there's traditional conservatism, and then there's a new, in America it's kind of like traditional conservatives, Republicans, that kind of thing, and the new alt right. Uh, that's more or less the kind of way, and they're both on the right, let's say, but they're not traditional. They're not all traditional conservatives. So in Italy, you have a traditional conservative party and a new alt right, which is defined by in Europe anyway these days is defined by um, well, it's nationalistic, I suppose, and it's anti-immigrant and it's anti-Europe, effectively. Mm -hmm. So those those are the two two parties that are more or less in power um, in what, Italy right now. What they both agree on is that 
They're anti-establishment. Right, anti-establishment, what whatever that means. they're not quite sure about is what the establishment is. Right, well, the establishment so, in their eyes is Europe, right? Overweening influence yes. of Europe on... That's what they have in common. Individual countries, yeah, yeah. in Europe. So, yeah, it's, but, it's, you know, it's democracy, man, and but we don't like it, you know? And it, it exposes the fact that, I mean, this shouldn't be a surprise or a, it should be shocking to anybody that... Uh, democracy <laughs> never really worked, you know. When people talk about, you know, when people talk about democracy and the the, the kind of political systems we have in in, in in a lot of places in the world, but let's say that were, you know, are defined by or the West is defined. Western countries like Western Europe or Europe and America are defined by the idea of uh, kind of liberal democracy, basically. Uh, and people talk about that and they say that it's, you know, it's it's not perfect, but it's the best of a of a bad lot. Let's say it's the best of a bad lot of systems that that you could have. But that they never point out that, you know, because that, that still allows or assumes that it's actually functioning as it's described, which is that what people want, what people say, uh, then that, that's what they get. Mm-hmm. And it's not, I mean, that, you don't have to be a genius to figure out that's not what actually happens, you know? And I mean, these kind of events like uh, with um, with the rise of, let's say, right-wing or nationalistic parties in Europe, and Donald Trump and stuff uh, shows that uh, it's not not favoured by the establishment, which also brings up then the question of is the establishment fundamentally lefty in in European countries and in North America? You know, the establishment that that re- reacts to these right wing populist kind of leaders or parties uh, or populist votes or nationalistic votes when there's a backlash against that from the establishment. That by definition means that the establishment is quote-unquote, left-wing, no? Yeah. And I mean, in America, you see it with the Democratic Party. It was the Democrats, it was Hillary and her gang who were out to get, and they were the, they're part of the deep state, right? Right. Uh, and, and the FBI and the CIA and all the intel agencies are all pro-Hillary, or supposedly, that's, that's the allegation, they were all pro-Hillary, they were all anti-Trump, who is uh, loved by conservatives. Ergo, the deep state in America and whatever deep state, quote-unquote, there is in uh, Europe or establishment there's in Europe, it's all left, right? No. You have to conclude that. But they hate the right. No, because the reason there's a reason why it's called neo neoliberal, because that's a caveat that's put on to say, well, it doesn't quite fit. If it was liberal, especially in the sense that it's used in the United States, then Europe's elites could simply be left as being left. Right. The thing is, they're all about the markets. Right. The firm believers that the free hand of the market mm. is what decides things, and it was actually beautifully expressed this week by the European Commissioner for trade i'm not sure the german guy mm-hmm. otto something or other mm. he made he made a mistake where he blurted out i think in a press conference in brussels that this result um in italy. Th- the crisis in italy the, it's a result of this is the markets what how do they put it this is the markets teaching them not to vote the wrong way all right now you think about that mind job going it's on not there. Them, it's the it's, it's shenanigans. It's backroom stuff that led to the crisis. But he can fall back in his ideology. Well, you see, the markets decide mm. how things are run, and we we just step in here and there. But fundamentally, the markets. So the markets is a, is the market idea. is alive. It's alive and it takes actions. It thinks. It's got like. Well, this is the market. This is traditionally a um, a tenet of the right that the markets, the free right. hand of the markets, Adam Smith. Right. Um, capitalism, let um, the market decide. Let the market do, and don't intervene unless you have to. Right. It's a minimalist approach. It's minimal government. Mm-hmm. Now, 
it, it, do, it that's not the end of the story, of course, but because the guy is speaking on behalf of a bureaucracy that's in, in, grown into this huge supranational government in Europe. Yeah. So there, there's there's some there, that's mm. not the end of the story. Right. So it's neither left nor right, but it is a power structure. Yeah, but they made it pretty clear. Brussels, the European Union, made it pretty clear. Uh, I mean, at least their their man in in Italy made it clear who's the the uh, the the president. Yeah. Of of Italy made it pretty clear that this government, this new government of these two right wing parties, were not going to fly. In particular, and their main problem was the uh, the guy who's going to be the economy minister, who was seriously eurosceptic. He was like, you know, we want out of Europe straight away type thing. Um, they were like, that's not going to happen. Sorry, that guy is not going to be the, the finance minister. And it had echoes of Varoufakis, you know, in his uh, big uh, clash with with uh, the troika, <clears throat> the troika or uh, the Brussels. Uh, establishment uh, back in what 2014 15 2015 yeah uh, when when Greece tried to uh, potentially or was going to exit blah blah blah, blah. but so that but they back down now and they've actually formed a government right so there's a bit of a crisis there now there but they've formed a government with these two parties and the only uh, concession the concession they've made is that this guy was not going to be uh, would not be allowed to be the minister for the economy or econ- economy minister uh, he's he's been made the minister for European affairs <laughs> instead uh, and there's that him in. in that role and some other guy who actually shares the same views as this guy. So there was something else going on. They put in a guy, for, they accepted a guy for the economy minister, Europe did, in Italy. Uh, they accepted this economic minister who pretty much has the same views as the guy that they didn't want to go in and who they made into the Europe, uh, minister for European affairs. Uh, so there's, there's some kind of personal thing, I think, going on at that level um, that, that, that hasn't been spoken about because, you know, well, the, the theory I've read, um, maybe we should bring this up here, actually. I have an article here. It was posted on SOT as the best of web um, by Steve Keane. He's an Australian economist, an economist on RT. This is actually an op-ed he wrote for RT. Have you got it on the screen there? I have, yeah. Um, Brussels-Rome war. It, the EU holds back Italy's anti-euro tide for now. That's, that's the headline. Let's just scroll down here and have a look. He he explains who this guy was that they were so anxious would not be the finance minister. Mm-hmm. But remember that's that's unprecedented. Italy's president is not a kingmaker. No. It is it's it's purely a symbolic role. Ceremonial. It's not supposed to happen. He's supposed to just sign the paper and at the last minute he says no he wouldn't. Right. What citing national security? I don't uh, even know what he's he, advised by he's a euro Europhile basically. Uh, so it's unprecedented. And that provoked a crisis within within Italy. And I think the story that Steve Keen has put together is probably close to the mark. It's not personal. This guy Savona, he's eighty-one years old. He was in the Italian government in the nineties. It's not like he's, you know, a young, a upcoming, young upcoming rebel, Marxist, rebel, yeah. self-described Marxist. Right. Barovakis called himself a rise of Harley Davidson. Right. Of course not. He's he's definitely one of the elite. He had a very specific plan, though. Um, let's see if I can find it here. It's very sim- which was very similar to what Varoufakis was going to set up right. using tax, the tax credit system, mm-hmm. which would, in Greece's case in 2015, would form a kind of an alternate payment system right. for people to be able to, to get credit, basically, mm-hmm. for buying basic goods. Mm-hmm. What, what that effectively does, it creates a separate legal tender mm-hmm. within the country mm-hmm. and gives the people some cushion between right. the euro right. And the pressing crisis and right. their immediate needs. Mm-hmm. And Italy, this guy Savona had come up with a similar scheme he called the mini bot. Well, that's been what has been referred to. Um, it would have uh, sidestepped 
effectively decides that the euro's monopoly is legal tender mm-hmm. just just within italy but right. you see once one but, country's well, doing it yep. then that that's the that's the end of the central power it's of the, raison d'etre right. it's for the, the camel and the arab Europe. not to be uh, politically incorrect but it's the camel and the arab um, and this is it's yeah it's exactly what varoufakis um it's prob- probably the precise contention point right that got him mm-hmm. That this guy Savona, was going, had this as a personal kind of long term, uh, kind of project, personal project type thing, and he was going to maybe leverage his position as economy minister to try and make it happen. And they didn't want that to happen. Yeah, it's just under from the Brussels perspective and the EU perspective that was undermining potentially undermining, uh, you know, the whole edifice of the EU. Obviously, if you, you know, if you if you try to undermine the euro as as a single currency, then you're attacking you're attacking the roots of the of the entire eu project so yeah you know it's like you have limited it's the same with everything else you have limited uh, freedom to to choose you know uh, in a democracy like we've seen you know you can choose this party or that party it's a democracy i mean you can't choose anybody that you want basically i mean it's just not going to happen you know there's an established establishment and people that run the country and the country runs in a certain way and you can't just let anybody come in with any crackpot ideas and and, right. and and potentially wreck it all. So that's 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 what that's what democracy is. So in that respect, democracy is the best of a bad lot. I.e., you generally speaking get to choose two flavors of vanilla, or you can get kind of um, you can get what is called in it, talking speaking of Italy, it's stradicella, which is like vanilla with some chocolate streaks to it, or you can get raspberry ripple. Right. But it's fundamentally vanilla ice cream, uh, cool. just with two different uh, flavors mixed well, what in. What I um, Varoufakis was told explicitly, and he wrote about it in his book. Yeah, Grim, Pepsi or Coke. Um, I, I, adults in the room that that uh, when he came in, he was told specifically, "Your brief, yes, is technically finance minister of Greece, but since the, the deal that was done by a predecessor, these specific briefs, so tax, mm-hmm. um, international trade, uh, and." Paying, paying off the debt, basically managing payments mm. to the IMF and to other creditors in in, in Europe. Mm-hmm. That's not your brief. Mm-hmm. So, so it's it's been stripped down legally. They, he was told you don't have that anymore. Right. And then he would try to find workarounds for that. That's basically what's being told here to Italy. But this mm-hmm. this is a little bit different though. Italy is the fourth largest country in Europe, population wise. One of the founding members of what became the European Union. This is a much bigger scale event here. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Italy has been told effectively the same thing. You no longer have the brief for yeah. your, your own financial Economy. slash fiscal policy. But that's surely that was known to everybody. That's, that's one of the things that gives rise to these parties is that that's known, has been known by countries in the EU for a long time. But that you th- basically, this is once you join the EU, being said. Once this you join the, the EU, the room. yeah, so it's coming out in public at this point. Yeah. But what, so maybe the public didn't know that. But I mean, certainly all politicians and, 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 and governments around Europe, anybody in the know kind of thing, at least, and anybody with half a clue realized that once you signed up the European Union project, you basically were giving away control of your finances to a large extent. There's very little wiggle room. I mean, you could, yes. you could, you could have you have some influence over over domestic economic affairs, but in terms of the the broad kind of movement of 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 trade and on of uh, you know kind of you know government income and surpluses and all that kind of stuff, it's like it's locked down within within the confines of the European Union. Um, economic project. Consider the two basic perspectives. So, from the national level of Italy, in this case, their perspective is: okay, we're going to run a, the new candidates, Salvini for the Lega Nord, and and um, I forgot the other guy for, for the Five Star movement. Right. Okay, so they're pitching something to the people. Mm-hmm. Now they know damn well they can't deliver. 
But right. you can understand, but it's attractive. It gets you in power. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You really do think you can make a difference and be smart enough right. to work around within the confines. But yes, they, they, they too have deceived the people as well because yeah. those briefs, you, you cannot change certain things. Right. But you can understand why they sincerely want to and why people clamor for it. I mean, austerity right. is a serious problem. Italy's growth rate is terrible. It's got mass unemployment. It needs help. Mm-hmm. It's locked within a European economic system that's mm-hmm. structurally, it, it's not working. It's, it's, not, it's working yeah, it's for not, Germany and some northern countries. Right. It's not working for It's not working for the, for the pigs. For the pigs. That's Portugal, Italy, Greece, and Spain. The southern European countries that are called but just the capital, uh, capital ladders of the country. Ireland, but. The, the pigs with two eyes. Oh, two eyes, yeah. Well, yeah, okay. Oh, Ireland, Ireland, I think Ireland did the least worst yeah. out of them yeah. in this situation. Yeah, so I mean, it's it, there's obviously a lot of people that, that these that these two parties could appeal to, uh, people on the street, you know, ordinary people in Italy, and the same is true for for other European countries where uh, they have these kind of parities that promise nationalism, a change basically. They, they obviously they they leverage nationalism and stuff, but they're promoting or uh, advocating to the people a change in the system that will be better, you know, a change for the better in the in the European system. That the European system was unfair uh, economically, and that's why. There's high unemployment, etc. Um, uh, you know, you know, you can't do as much business. You can't, there's not not enough income. There's not enough, you know, business or, or employment opportunities in, in certain countries. And also, the other thing I throw in the this is why it's one thing to just be eurosceptic from a financial point of view or be conservative or be nationalistic. But today, what's thrown in on top of that, which also appeals, which doubles the appeal for people, is anti-immigration. And it's no surprise that Italy, um, also being a southern one of the pigs countries, excluding Ireland, a southern European yeah. country like uh, Greece, Italy, Spain, uh, po- uh, not so much Portugal, but certainly uh, Greece, Italy and Spain all have had, or at the, the forefront, have been at the forefront of the kind of immigration from North Africa uh, and the Middle East into into those countries, they're the, the front line basically. Uh, and a lot of people are staying there, a lot of immigrants are staying there, so particularly people in Italy, in the south in particular, are, um, you know, that's something that a lot of people would, you'd have a lot of leverage with a lot of people if you say, listen, we need to do something about the influx of immigrants coming in. And it's also Brussels' fault. That's actually Brussels' fault as well. So you can see where this anti-Brussels thing comes in on an economic level, why, why we don't have jobs, why we don't, why we don't have better, better job prospects, and why there's a bunch of immigrants roaming our streets. You know, mm-hmm. you can t- sensationalize it up and say, you know, you know, c- committing robberies and stealing our jobs and women, that kind of thing, you know. Uh, all of that is to blame, or Europe is to blame for all of that. Uh, that's, and that's the thing, you see, when they say, sorry, that's not your brief, it's ours, well, you're taking on the responsibility. So it will continue, and more so now, to be directed up at you. Right. So if you if you, that is really your responsibility, then you have got to sort it out somehow. Right. And the problem is that they're, they're, they seem to be extremely slow learners. Who? Well, Eurocrats in general, yeah. let's say, um, and also, the, let's say, the, the powerhouse behind the most powerful countries, so particularly in Berlin mm-hmm. and France and the U- UK, which hasn't really left Europe and probably won't yet either. They're the three biggest countries, the three northern countries. And they, they, I wonder sometimes, do they not understand what is coming? I mean, that's Italy now, but it could be France next, where there is a popular revolt that is more than just well, you voted the wrong way, and here actually, well, yeah, you, you can have this guy instead. Well, there's a trend happening, obviously, that we're seeing when we can say, obviously, Italy. Uh, we've just talked about Italy, but 
uh, Greece was pretty much in the same. It was a national. It was an anti-Europe kind of nationalistic. And, and Greece may have been was a bit early in, in 2015, but even then it was already beginning with the immigrants and stuff. And you know there was that aspect uh, in in the in the Brexit uh, scandal or or, or event uh, in 2015. But since then, obviously, you've seen the rise in uh, right-wing nationalistic parties in Germany. You've had Brexit for God's sake. I mean. The British decided to just—you have to hand it to the Brits. Like, uh, I mean, all these other countries are just talking about it. They just decided <laughs> up and left, like you know, supposed right. supposedly up and left, right? They—they're uh, they're not up for. Uh, but but I mean, it's interesting that to look back at the at the various places where, and I mean, you have uh, in Eastern Europe even, and um, that's kind of for the same reason: European problems, European economic problems, but also um, uh, immigration in Hungary. Orban, who's the yeah. um, you know nationalistic leader who is advocating the same things, basically it's nationalism, keep the immigrants out, and more or less divest from Europe, and mm-hmm. that is spreading more and more. And there's no there's no reason to believe or reason to think that that's going to stop. It's it's probably going to continue, and it's yeah it causes a lot of headaches for the people in Brussels say, trying to keep the EU together. But it, it's when Orban you know, comes to Brussels, Juncker, the European Commission president, unelected, right. Lifetime bureaucrat, yeah. civil servant. Yeah. It's, it's weird. It's a bit like Whitehall, but they're public about it, you right. know? Yeah. Um, Orban goes, meets Juncker, and oh, he insults him. Here's the dictator, you know, slaps his face. That was several years ago, and people joked about Juncker. He must have been, you know, having a few at lunch because he's, he's rumored to be a bit of an alco. But uh, in the in the meantime, um, Orban then is re-elected right. in a landslide. I right. mean, that's something that's not happening in the west of Europe. In the east of Europe, the political parties are doing very well because they're the right wingers. Yeah. The right wingers because they're digging their heels in and they're right. they're actually being able to deliver. And there's an argument to say that Eastern Europe is less liberalised or left, uh, or sorry, less. Um, <clears throat> you know, it's it's been less. Um, I don't know if you want to say mo- modernised, but it's it's certainly there. There'd be more of a, a stronger uh, strata of conservative, um, you know, thinking. And a, and a bigger demographic of more conservative, or the, just the culture in Eastern European countries. Not all of them, obviously, it's split, but I think there's more. There's so a stronger in- streak of independence. Remember, they're only relatively right. recently right. in either NATO right. or the EU. Right. Both usually came conjoined together right. only 10, 15 years. Right, so their nationalism is still fresh in their memories. Exactly. The idea of us as an independent country is still relatively, relatively the, young. The big four who started the European Economic Commission too long. and NATO back in the <clears> 1950s. Yeah. You know, there's a kind of, there is an ideology, and right. it's, it's but it's always partly, below the surface, right? Because it's easy to promote it's only partly in the UK, right? Yeah, and you look at the UK. I mean, it's easy to for that to to to, to rise back up. You know, at least then, well, if you believe the results of Brexit, it was a majority of the of the people, at least of let's say the UK or not the UK of England. Certainly in England, the majority of people in England uh, we found their 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 nationalism very very quickly. You know, when it came to a, to a vote, you know, uh, despite the fact that they've been they've been, you know, in in Europe and uh, well, um, you know, connected into Europe for for for, 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 for decades. In, yeah. in your in case, yes. um, there was a concept I was taught in in secondary school, mm-hmm. high school. Um, so it's been around for decades. The democratic deficit. Mm. Everyone knows about it. They teach about it. They discuss it in universities. But three decades later, no one's. It, it's just gotten so pronounced and so 
in your face that you've got that situation where Juncker, the lifetime bureaucrat, mm-hmm. and the elected prime minister of a country, and, and the relationship is, he's talking down at him. He, mm-hmm. In fact, he's insulting him, calling him the dictator. Well, right. that, mm-hmm. How does that jive with your democratic values and your you're pontificating, mm. especially to non-EU actors like Russia, right. uh, how they're undemocratic right. and so on. The the contradictions are just yeah. pour out of the whole the whole thing. Democratic deficit. I looked up a definition of the term just, just to explain it. I found one on the EU's own legal Lex Lex website. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Democratic deficit is a term used by people who argue that EU institutions and their decision-making procedures suffer from a lack of democracy mm. and seem seem only seem inaccessible to the ordinary citizen due to their complexity <laughs> so that's a very safe <laughs> definition jesus i mean yeah yeah but it goes on very uh, true the real the real it claims the real eu dem- democratic deficit seems to be the absence of european politics mm-hmm. the absence of european politics <clears throat> hang on a second i thought what was Varoufakis? his whole shtick when grexit erupted in 2015 the whole reason he dug his heels in, he said it at the time, and then he wrote two books about it and went on speaking tours about it after. He wasn't digging in as a nationalist. He was right, a lefty, Syriza, yeah. very left. He was digging in, though, on behalf of the people who vote, who elected him, right. his fellow Greeks, because he was trying to highlight the structural problems with the EU mm-hmm. and how it was crazy that a tiny country like Greece could be possibly get an, enough growth going again to start paying just some of the debt. Right. But he was his whole <clears throat> focus was on was on no, I'm digging in so that we bring this up in discussion and we set some ground rules for how things work for everyone, mm. for the entire European politics. And they would have none of it. They shut him down. He has to go. It was a war. It was a mm-hmm. six month war. Eventually Varoufakis right. left. Syriza capitulated even though they got the yes vote mm-hmm. or the no vote. In that infamous referendum, and it—that's—that's that's exactly what Europe's problem is. There is no democratic, uh, a pan-Europeanist consensus of how things are and where we're going. It's all done in the shadows, semi-articulated, and then as each new crisis comes up, a sort of a hole is patched, mm-hmm. and we'll explain it, and we'll form a, we'll all get together and talk about it. Yeah. But there's no real, there, there is no European nation, so there is no European belief. There are no European values. It's been made up ad hoc. Right. Build it and they will come. Including at the economic level. Right. Structurally, the Europe doesn't know what the hell it's right. doing. And Varoufakis' very, very simple explanation that if, if it is separate nation states, then there are massive trade deficits. Mm-hmm going on in between them just right. like trump talks about vis-a-vis china and right. germany right? right that's exactly the same problem in europe in a normal country in the united states a federated system the center takes the trade and it distributes it and if that's lefty well then so be it but that's how a sovereign entity works europe doesn't do that the markets will decide right. are you kidding the well, markets it, will leave well, europe, I, mean, I mean europe does distribute funds from it a does. central uh, european fund good. right i mean it, it subsidizes it farmers it, it, and all that kind of stuff needs but to do a lot more it needs to do a lot more especially on a regional basis right on a regional basis and and taking into consideration more into consideration the the actual deficits or the the differences between the effectively the the gdps or the production of uh, like germany has this massive kind of surplus basically and Italy's going, well, can we have some of that then since we joined up this EU thing? Can you send some of that our way? You know, but it's like, 
it's it's not just about giving us free stuff. It, it's at the financial level behind, say, right. the trading of actual stuffs and making of stuff. Yeah. The financial level, Italy was on the back foot from the beginning. Mm -hmm. So it would have had to have a totally different monetary policy to have the trade boom when the eurozone started. Right. But because it's one currency, there can only be one, and it, it was it was fixed at the beginning uh, or set up at the beginning that best suited Germany. Right. Which made sense, and everyone agreed to that. Okay, and we all must stay within that lines, and eventually it'll all even out. Right. It hasn't all evened out, mm -hmm. and Germany isn't able to pull everyone up together. Yeah. Uh, well, we'll have to wait and see see how that goes. Um, but for now, there's a new government. We'll see how long it lasts. Italy has a has a long uh, history of having not very long lived governments. Basically, uh, if you look at the history of uh, of that of your of, of Italian governments, some of them last like a few days. Um, exactly. Uh, well, the EU has done the mighty. Mm. It's managed to unite the so-called extreme left and extreme right into one government. Where in Italy? In Italy. Well, they're not extreme left, though. They're not really. That's the yeah. thing. Yeah. What, 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 like we said earlier, all what unites them in Italy is, I mean, it's this uh, swing to the right. Effectively, it's it's an it as perceived by people on the left. Let's say mm. it's it's perceived as a swing to the right. It's the it's the rise of nationalism uh, in Europe, and it scares them. Yeah. You know, it's because these two parties that have joined together in Italy are basically anti-immigrant and and pro pro nationalism and eurosceptic uh, to to some extent or another. You know, so um, and that's how that's why they can more or less uh, you know form a government together. But again, we'll see how long it lasts. Because um, yeah, let's uh, let's move over to um, where are we going to move to Asia. Let's take a flight to Asia. What's okay. going on in Asia? North Korea. Um, what about Rocket Man? What's he up to? Um, I don't know. Rocket Man's not doing very much. He's uh, he's piling up with uh, with his southern southern counterpart. I know. What's that about? Don't uh, they know we're at war? <laughs> they should be at war. Yeah. Uh, there's an article here. I'll just pull it up. Um, so you can look at it. It just it's from today actually. Well, you know, this was going eastward. They're ahead of us, obviously. So this was Mattis, uh was in North Korea over the weekend, and today. Um, so this is Secretary of Defense, U.S. Secretary of Defense Jim Mattis has has defined or outlined how uh, the conditions for North Korean sanctions relief. Um, Jim Mattis says North Korea will receive sanctions relief only after it has taken irreversible steps to abandon its nuclear program. Nuclear program, a demand that Washington has made previously and alternatively as a condition for a possible meeting between U.S. President Donald Trump and North Korean leader Kim Jong Un. Blah blah blah. So it's Trump got to meet young Kim Jong Un. I don't know. Who cares? Uh, does it matter? Maybe it matters. Maybe it doesn't. Um, America's still trying to uh, set terms and make it look like it is. You know, it's very important that America is involved in any process anywhere around the world. It doesn't matter where it is. Um, but the thing I find interesting about uh, North Korea is the thing that's never spoken, uh, never said. This is kind of subtext. Uh, well, it's not even a subtext. It's just never spoken. No one ever thinks about it because they, they just go with the narrative, which is that, but why is America concerned? Why is this all going on with North Korea at all? Why is anybody concerned about North Korea? What's the problem with North Korea? Leave them alone? Why can't, my question is, why can't North Korea be left alone? Because they hate us for our freedoms. No, they don't hate no. anybody. Why, why, listen, look at the size of the country. Tiny little country, joined at the hip with China, uh, partitioned in the middle, uh, you know, what's, uh, why can't North Korea be left alone? What's, what's the problem with North Korea? Because it's our little bit of 
the no, West. What's, what's the official answer? The official answer is because it's communist. No. Because it. I just uh, read about it. I just I just read it out. Only only after it has taken irreversible steps to abandon its nuclear program. Oh, nukes, right? Right, nukes. North Korea nukes. That's the problem. Why is that a problem? Because they might use them on who? On the United States. How? Why? When? Where? Because they're implacable foes. They're, they're still at war since 1953. They are? Officially. Officially, but they're not really. But no, my point here is that it's ridiculous. Uh, it's a ridiculous narrative, basically, that, is, that people shouldn't take seriously and shouldn't, you know, people should go, eh, that doesn't make sense, but they never do that. They just say, oh, yeah, North Korea nukes. Yeah, you got to do something with those nukes. Why? Uh, I don't know, because nukes are bad. Uh, if nukes are bad, what do you mean nukes are bad? I mean, people need to be asked this question. Is the point? You know what I mean? Or at least, if you don't, if you can't ask them directly, when when you when you write a newspaper article, the mainstream media might write a newspaper article. They need to explain this out. You know, follow your logic through. North Korea is bad because it's got nukes. Why? Because nukes are bad. But well, if nukes are bad, uh, how come America has them and France has them and the UK has them? Because they're responsible. Countries. Okay, so what you're saying is North Korea isn't responsible. No. They're irresponsible. Yeah. And what they would do would be, if they had nukes, they would kill people. They might. Why would they do that? What, what would be the end result of them doing that? Imagine they get one nuke or two nukes or three nukes. Who are they going to nuke? Japan? Ch well, they're going to nuke America, right? That's the whole point. They're going to nuke America. So as soon as the missiles fired in America, before it gets to America, what's going to happen in North Korea? It's going to be turned into a big glass parking, parking lot, right? Lot. It's going to be gone, right? So the ergo, North Korea and any country like Iran who wants to get nukes, they're government are so insane that they have a death wish that they all they want to do is kill America and they don't care if they don't get to kill America which is the inevitable result because as soon as they fire their first nuke they'll be wiped out and that'll be it they would be erased from the pace of pages of history and they wouldn't achieve anything so that's how crazy these people are right right Iran the leadership of Iran that's how, they're so feckless that uh, well it's amazing they're actually able to run the country right because they're so obviously not so insane they have this mad death wish that they're just desperately trying to get a nuke so that they can bomb the crap out of America not achieve that and get wiped out themselves and they just like they never existed. Dinosaurs, right? Gone. That's who they are. No, it obviously doesn't make any sense. Why isn't the media talking about it? But they give this bullshit, banal story every time. Uh, North Korea, nukes, you know, they're bad and stuff. That's why America's... Bullshit. Obviously bullshit. That's not why they're there. That's not why they claim... The there is some truth to it, obviously. The nuke angle is obviously a problem for America and maybe for other countries in the world. I don't know. I mean, maybe for Russia. Russia has to some extent said, yeah, North Korea probably shouldn't have nukes. Uh, it's also said Iran probably shouldn't have nukes. But Russia and China aren't saying that because they think, oh my God, these Iranians or these North Koreans will wipe us out as soon as they get their nukes. They're saying it for other strategic reasons, but the reason America says it is because America is afraid that of basically of the leverage and the change in the balance of power, let's say, in a particular region when a country gets nuclear weapons. It's like the countries that have nuclear weapons so far today, they're the kind of founders of the... They're on, they're, they're on first, basically. That's the way it is, and there's an order that's been set up, a balance of power, because nukes obviously allow you a lot of leverage, right? If you've got a functioning nu nuclear weapons program with uh, nukes and the systems to deliver them and stuff, you can you have to be taken seriously. Other countries have to take you seriously. When you go and negotiate with them, in the background, the idea is that, uh, yeah, I, he's got nukes, mm -hmm. so don't piss him off. I mean, never guess that point, but it's there in the background, you know? And that's the leverage that these countries want. They just say, well, we want that leverage too, like you all have it. But the other countries are saying, nah, 
you can't have that leverage because what? Well, why? Because well, I'm sorry, you just weren't on first, and there's just, there's an order, a world world order that has been established based on, in part anyway, based on the fact that certain countries have nuclear weapons, and they they enjoy the advantages of that, the leverage that that gives them, and nobody else is getting it because we can't have everybody having nuke. I was I often think actually, what if everybody, every country in the world, were to be given nuclear weapons? Would that be a problem? No, I don't think it would be, you know. So it's basically it's kind of like, I suppose, kind of like again the analogy of the bully or the bullies or the big guys in the in the schoolyard. They keep that's the way that the world works. This is the way, and part of that order, part of that hierarchy that has been established in the world, and the way it works is based on, partly based on nuclear weapons, and we want to keep it that way. So anybody who wants them. So what pisses me off is the kind of like catastrophist sensationalist screaming about oh my god what if that country got nuclear weapons it wouldn't make any difference at all really in pra any practical terms you know it pisses me off when i have to read that in the media and, and i get that impression and i see that the media never actually explains that obvious point that it's not a big deal at all <clears throat> it's only a big deal from the point of view of the countries who are screaming about say iran or north korea getting nuclear weapons are me well it's, it's really only america right i mean to some extent western european countries as well they just don't want any change in a kind of balance in power. Even a small shift or change in a balance in power not, that has knock-on effects, they don't want it to happen. But they have to present it to the people in these catastrophic terms, and they have to demonize the leaders of these countries as these crazy nutjobs who would just go postal with their nukes and, and wipe out as many people as possible before they went down themselves, you know? Which is nonsense, you know? And it, But that forms people's views of these other countries, you know, of the North Koreans, yeah, they must all be a bit nutty. Certainly that rocket man, he's a nut job. And I'm, I mean, anybody who supports it, look at all those people supporting him. Are they supporting him for real? I don't know, maybe they're being paid to do that or, maybe, or forced to do it or they're being pulled out of the, the slave slave labor camps and told to smile and, and you know, brushed up or mm -hmm. cleaned, up, cleaned up for the day. But uh, you'd be surprised though, it comes from the strangest quarters. Last year, he, he maybe knows more now, but last year, Rodrigo Duterte, the right. leader of the Philippines, chimed in and said, yeah, we don't want this crazy man firing nukes yeah. all over the region. Right. Suggesting he sincerely that that was his take on it. Now, is he just getting the media view and he just believes it? Or is, does he know better? And, you know, it's hard to say. Yeah. I, I think. I don't know. I don't. It's obviously it's it's a possibility or it's a potential that somebody, some country would get nukes and they might use them but they'd have to be clinically insane you know and this is the this is the way it's presented why are people like that presented as being kind of just completely like they're off the rocker right they're nuts and i.e they're the ones who as soon as they cobble together some nuclear weapon they would just fire at the closest freaking country they could get you know just yeah. just to, just to fire one off there you know uh it doesn't make any sense you know because absolutely countries I mean, aren't it's not as simplistic as that there isn't one person with a finger on the button um in any country, uh, you know, president or not, and, um, and and obviously you have to allow some modicum of sanity to a person who's been or a, a, a government that has been functioning pretty well in the country. It has self-interest. They're aware of the world. They're aware of the other nuclear powers in the world, and they know that they'll be wiped out if they try to attack anybody. So unless they've got a death wish, that doesn't fit. That crazy nut job with a nuke who's going to kill us all as soon as he gets it, it just doesn't fit. Even in an extremely volatile situation, India and Pakistan both right. have nukes. Yeah. 
and they've had enough border skirmishes. It's still technically a hot war. Mm. They have disputed territory over Jammu and Kashmir in the north. Yep. Hello, they don't use nukes. I'm sure they'd like to from time to time, but uh, even there, it's yeah. self-preservation. You do. You Comes just in don't. First. Yeah. So. Um... Yeah. So Trump's meeting is off again, on again, on again. What about his now? But do we have his comment. Saying... No. No. Um, well, we have. I have, can read it out though. What do you say? Um, well, he was talking about the letter. <laughs> yeah. So, well, the, he, he said the meeting's on. And then I was like, okay, where did that come from? And then he said it's off because there was a statement he saw by the North Koreans he didn't like. And then, then he got a letter, he says, from Kim Jong-un. Kim Jong-un. Um, handed to him by his deputy, deputy chairman. I'm not sure. He's, he's someone senior in the North Korean government who was in Washington just late this last week. Um, and he was sending that he he was talking about this letter and how it was a beautiful letter, but he hadn't beautiful. opened it yet. Yeah. So he's talking about a beautiful, lovely letter. It's a great letter. And then they say to him, "Well, I can't tell you what's in it." And then the journalists say, "So, what well, could you give us the gist of it? What's in it?" I haven't opened it yet. And it's like, I mean, I don't know. What do you do with something like that? I mean, I start to understand finally people's frustration with Donald Trump. Now I don't just start to understand it. I've known it for a long time, obviously, but. The guy just is. Why do I say stuff like that? He's he's trying. He's rambling. He's trying. To, I think he's trying to be circumspect. He's trying to do the diplomatic thing, where you don't you don't give away a position, but yeah. you hint at something that you might like. Right. Where but then you stick your foot in it. You say something when not saying something. But then so don't on. say that you haven't opened the letter yet. Right. Then he will blurt out the simple right. truth of a situation. In so his mouth, his mouth was engaged before his uh, was in gear before his uh, his brain. Exactly. I fired and up, yeah. Also in this press conference, it was just like a few statements after he met the North Korean deputy guy. Um, he was referring to the Russian meeting. Lavrov went to North Korea right. the day before, I think on Thursday. Right. Uh, and <clears> met with... Uh, it was all very nicely. Nicely, met, it was a formal meeting. Met with Kim Jong-un. Yes. Met with Rocket Man and everyone was good. And he was Kim, asked, Kim, Trump was asked what he thought about well, Kim, it. Well, Kim Jong-un said, at that meeting, Kim Jong-un thanked Russia for being, and for opposing America. Oh. That's what Kim Kim said specifically to Lavrov. It's on it's on video, and uh, yeah. So then he was asked about that meeting. He said he didn't like it, but I didn't like it. As what's the purpose of this meeting? But it could be a positive meeting. Yeah. If it is a positive meeting, I love it. Right. If it's a negative meeting, I'm not happy. Uh huh. And it could very well be a positive meeting. <laughs> That's a smart thinking there, Trump. Like, I mean, if so, if it's good, you like it, and if it's not good, you don't like it. Okay. Well, so that's his policy, basically. Stuff I like is good. Stuff I don't like. I don't like, and therefore it's bad. So it sounds bad, but you get his point. No, his point is, what the hell is Russia up to? But maybe they're helping the situation along in a way that right. I so like. Right. That the United States good for the United States, so, or so I'm problem, holding it up. They may be screwing us behind our so backs. The, so the problem with Trump is that he's got an inner monologue. He doesn't have an inner monologue anymore. So his thoughts, his private thoughts, just come out of his mouth. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm sure he's been, people have accused him of that before. Obviously, on, on Twitter and stuff, he, he tweets stuff that. You know, Dude, just think about those things. Try thinking about them first, you know? Uh, don't speak them. Think first and then decide whether or not to say it. But that's not the art of the art of the deal, is it? Well, the art of the deal is open your mouth and find out what you said afterwards. Did I say that? Wow, cool. The salient point with North Korea is that 
unlike what Trump says, this is not maximum United States pressure that's brought this situation about. It's very probably the big stick wielded by North Korea all last year, precisely the things that got him accused of being a crazy dictator who we cannot let get nukes, otherwise he'll bomb the whole world or something, or Washington. It was the very fact that he, I think, got to that technical point where the country could do some serious damage that everything suddenly turned in January this year. Next thing, his sister's going to mm-hmm. the winter ceremony. Mm-hmm. They've arranged a meeting. They meet for the first time in uh, half a century. Yeah, it's possible that that's... Uh, or rather, was... first time in half a century that he, as the leader of North Korea, was in the South. They've since met again mm-hmm. in secret, unannounced. Not secret, it's been reported. They've had uh, international journalists come in for the first time to film... In one case, the explosion of their supposed sole test site. Right. So, I mean, something's snowballing here. Mm. And it's snowballing in a way that it's, it's, it's reality changing for that situation. Something is going to definitely change. There's, there's no looking back. Mm. There's been enough signs now just in the last five right. months that something's di- definitely different. And the only thing that I can think of, it's not Trump's arrival. It's not Trump's other deal. It's Chinese pressure, but only in concert with internal factors mm. on the korean peninsula south korea looks at right they see they actually have nukes now right that changes everything mm. so it's the opposite to what they say about nukes yeah. it's the very fact of getting the damn right, things the that makes you not turn out like libya right exactly that's exactly the point uh because if you have nukes we don't have the it's no longer on the table. We no longer have the assurance that Wait, you can't hurt us back. Well, we no longer have the option of, just, of of regime changing you. We can't do what we want. It's like you're not open to us anymore. You're not... And so we have to smile and talk. Yeah, talk you're not reasonable. Weak. You're not you. weak. So who can blame Iran or North Korea or anybody in that geopolitical context of, of wanting to get nuisance? It's an assurance. It's an insurance against potentially getting wiped out or overthrown or regime changed, or civil warred by America, you know? Um, yeah, so speaking of Europe, and obviously there, we've been talking about um, changes in Europe, but there's also changes uh, going on as a result of, as we mentioned in previous shows a little bit, uh, the Trump back and the Iran deal, uh, and Europe being shocked by that. Uh, curse your sudden but inevitable betrayal um, and deciding that they have to go their own way. Europe has to learn to fly, sail the ship alone without the the wing, the protective wing of the American Eagle always above them. Uh, it's sad. But uh, this is what they're talking about. And suddenly, I mean, they changed on time. You know, it was like, Trump's like, okay, we're leaving. Uh, we're going to start a kind of a trade war. We started a trade war with China. We're going to start a bit of a trade war with uh, Europe and with Canada and anybody else who we don't like uh, because of the economy and Trump's campaign promises to make America great again with jobs and stuff. So Trump's plan to do this is sanctioning everybody. And uh, starting with Iran and therefore the rest of the whole world. And the result being that Europe goes what the, and uh, and decides that they have to develop a more independent uh, policy. But not so much independent because Europe needs friends, basically. And so if America isn't so much our friend anymore, who 
it's going to be our friend. Who's going to be our new friend? Uh, well, there's that country, that big country, who part of which is actually in Europe, that we've been talking shit about for years now. Maybe we should stop talking shit about them and be their friend again. What do you think? Genius idea. Europe, you are a genius. Um, Macron, you go to St. Petersburg. Macron, you're going to St. Petersburg. First of all, you're going to, yeah, you're going to run around. Macron and Merkel's going to say stuff. And Juncker, the guy we're talking about who likes this bit of a sauce monster at lunchtime, <laughs> likes a couple of bottles of red wine every lunchtime before he goes and has a speech. Uh, <laughs> before he goes and talks to the press. Yeah, this is, uh, this is him on video now. Uh, just a short one. A comment he made very recently. Uh, he, this was the evening time, so he wasn't, he wasn't, uh, he wasn't snockered so much anyway. Uh, so I'll just play the video. It's only 30 seconds. Or I do think that uh, we have to reconnect with Russia. I'm not, I'm not very happy about uh, the state of our relations. So we have to come back to, I wouldn't say a normal relation with Russia, but there are so many areas, so many domains, not forgetting what our differences and diversities are. But this um, Russia bashing, has to be brought to an end. Ooh. Russia bashing has to be brought to an end. What? What do you mean Russia bashing has to be brought to an end? What Russia bashing? We were just getting started. I thought Russia had infringed all these basic civilized mores of how normal societies function and that the EU was fully supportive, that Russia was evil, and now you're calling it all Russia bashing, the thing you participated in for the last 10 years. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I mean, things change. And so do your, so does your moral compass. And hypocrisy is not a crime; it's a way of life. So you just make stuff up as you go along. And since America has ditched us, we're going to have to stop this Russia, Russia bashing, and we're going to have to be friendlier with Russia. Uh, and we're also not going to back out of the Iran deal. And we're still going to do business with Iran, and we maybe we'll try to do business in euros with Iran if that, see if that works. And we'll try to weather the storm of the potential sanction smackdown from uh, Trump Central, um, who, I mean, still, we'll have to wait and see how that goes. Some, uh, it's hard to find an actual list of co uh, companies, European companies, that have already complied with sanctions, uh, or the, the potential, the soon-to-be uh, effective <clears throat> sanctions uh, against Iran. And there, I, I mean, people talk about sanctions on Iran. Iran's already been sanctioned to a large extent, and it knows what sanctions are. It's not about sanctioning Iran. Trump isn't sanctioning Iran, really. What he's doing is, effectively, the worst part of it is that he's sanctioning the rest of the world. Mm. He's saying, you don't do business. The rest of the world does no business with Iran. And that means you don't sell anything to them, and that means you don't buy anything from them. Nothing. Of course, countries, <clears throat> just several countries will just laugh at that and have already kind of just you know dismissed that. Because they have no, no reason not to. They, there's no, there's no, um, uh, they've nothing to lose basically by doing that. They don't, uh, they won't suffer. Russia, for example, China, um, India, apparently, Pakistan, and apparently the European Union, European countries, are all saying that uh, that they will not uh, comply with these sanctions. Um, but yeah, some of them... I can the, name the, the, at least one case of the country already. A major Swiss rail company had a huge deal with Iran lined up. Right. They pulled out, and this week, Iran signed... The same deal with... 
Chinese company. Right. It's going to move fast. These people, they can talk the talk, but they need to really walk something up. I don't know what it is. It's Who? bypassing the dollar. Oh, the European trade in euros. Yeah. They, it's, companies are already pulling out. Right. But companies do it on, on their own initiative, basically, because they have their own bottom line to, to, to consider, you know, because those companies themselves are exposed. So they, they're sanctioned or, you know, indirectly through Europe or something like that. Those companies themselves and, and, uh, uh, it depends on the company, obviously, and what kind of exposure it has to American, the American economy, and what kind of investments it has in the American economy, what kind of money it has in American bank accounts, and all that kind of stuff. <clears throat> so certain companies, big companies, would be are more exposed than others, you know. But Russian companies, for example, Chinese companies, you know, there's some of them, but not a lot, very few of them, really, who are exposed in that way, and they can happily continue to do business with Iran uh, and just ignore ignore anything Trump says. But yeah, the, uh, the British press this week taking these two big things into consideration, Italy and the crisis with European democracy, as in there is none at the EU level, mm. and sorry, we decide who, who will be your minister or not. That, and then this issue over the Iran deal and global trade, um, the British press is dancing all over because they're forecasting it's just a matter of days, weeks, maybe years before the EU collapses. Right. What do you think? Do we do the same kind of negative prognosis for the EU as such? Yes. Because, I mean, it's it's too, it's too, I really, think... the sheer strong force, I mean, there's two opposite tidal forces where Europe has to unite to be able to successfully navigate a transatlantic breakup. A trade war, yeah. And establish fast links with Moscow and Beijing. Mm-hmm while dealing, basically slowly trying to manage breaking the news to European electorates that yes, there is democracy in Europe, but only for, you know, gay rights or abortion Mm -hmm. or, you know, those things you can handle, but you leave the rest of us. We run Europe. Mm -hmm. You don't elect us. Yeah. It's obviously hard to say what's going to happen happen with Europe. I mean, it's obviously very, already very well networked together in terms of all the European countries um, and it would be... Although less so in the East. Less on the East, but certainly the original country, the, let's say the 2020, the original, not the original 20, but... Say, and accepting the UK. Accepting the UK. But even the UK, the Brexit thing is, is a bit of a sham, like, mm. because there are... I mean, that Brexit is an example of how difficult it is mm. to get away from the EU because you have these structures, basically economic structures set up to... As, as part of the EU project for countries in the EU to do business with each other. And that's though they're they're part of uh you know part part of the, the requirement for availing yourself of those structures or partaking in, in those structures, those economic structures where you trade with each other is that you are a member of the EU. You've signed up, you signed your name, you're you have a membership card basically, right? If you just say I'm gone, then suddenly it effectively means in theory it means that you no, no longer trade on a preferential basis with other European countries, which is very bad for a, an economy because the European Union was set up to, in theory, you know, favor European economies working together and, you know, facilitate trade, you know, in the, in the easiest and most profitable way for everybody. That was the theory, obviously, but and it works, and and it works one, out. And one country, one vote. It was a right. democratic principle. If one person vetoes, it doesn't right. pass. So we have to discuss it again and things move slowly as right. a result. There's exactly. no strong central power saying, no, look. Yeah. Everyone on board. Yeah. Although they are starting to do that more and more in recent right. years as crises come up. Right. You know, two years ago, was 2015, so three years ago now, 
when Grexit erupted, um, certainly myself, I don't know about you, but I was like, this is terrible. You know, mm. what about democracy? And Brussels can't do that. Then evil. But now, I mean, I've seen more how Russia's managed democracy. Even it's a whole other topic, but China's one party state. Obviously, people have all kinds of views about it. You know, the extreme one being, oh, well, it's one party state. Therefore, it's just evil at the start. It, it would never function well. <coughs> Clearly, it is functioning very well. Mm. It's an incredible success. Um, and they, they, if you read what they say, they talk democracy too. They have, a, they, they have plenty of it in their rhetoric in, in formal government positions on things. It's openly used and discussed. They just have a different angle on it. Mm -hmm. What I'm getting at here is Europe is kind of behaving a bit like the thing that worked in China, where there is no democracy at that level. No. But yes, there can be regional, yeah. local, um, b between the different peoples. China's made up of like 60 different languages, right. so there's different peoples. It's a bit like an EU without right. the formal national, nation state borders. Maybe, maybe maybe Europe is that that's that's how that's how the best way to get through. There there is a elite that does not delegate. Mm -hmm. it, it won't it won't brook any. There's no one coming in to change things here, you know. And at least it's, it's in a way it's open about it. Whereas in the U.S., whenever we're having this conversation, we we put in brackets the deep state mm -hmm. because there's unspoken power behind right. the official. Right rhetoric about oh every four years you vote and you the people decide mm -hmm. and everyone follows the illusion and until they get disappointed and disappointed again right now people are being disappointed in you with trump mm -hmm. even though he's trying his damnest to live up to what he said he was going to get voted for mm -hmm. um yeah it seems to be kind of a an evolution maybe there'll be a corresponding awareness i think i would put my money at the on, moment i just see a lot of piss i just people. put my people on, i would put my sorry my, my money on nationalism you know, nationalism, and I know it's a bad word and stuff, but nationalism is very natural <clears throat> for the vast majority of people. It's something they can identify with. Mm. It's their nation, their idea, and unfortunately it brings up, <clears throat> brings in racial issues, which is obviously in the, the, the whole <clears throat> immigration problem is exacerbating that and, and causing this up, upswing in nationalism. But, I mean, nationalism is something that is readily identifiable with for a, a the majority of people in any any one country. My language, my culture. My language, my country, my people. A leader, I, I recognize. A leader, I recognize that I can identify with, who is from here, who speaks like me, who talks like me, blah blah. If you start to outsource that, outsource your kind of <clears throat> your your democracy, effectively, like like I have in Europe, where everybody is, you know, there's less and less control within each European country, and European all the different peoples in European countries are meant to look to some central power in Brussels, made up of some, you know amalgamation of a bunch of different European people all squashed into one guy who speaks like in every single language and is, you know, kind of not exactly white, but not exactly, you know, Southern European or slightly dark skinned, whatever, you know, it's like, who is that person? You know, each country has their, have their own. I mean, Europe has tried to water that down, tried to create this, this, um, European identity, European identity, European community type thing, you know, of peoples and stuff. But, the national, the national identity still persists, and we see how quickly they, I mean, they they were papered over, but they're just below the surface. Mm. And all it takes is something like an immigration, uh, a wave of immigrants coming in and, and causing some kind of problems or perceived problems, and right there it, it, it breaks through again. And uh, so, 
Um, yeah, and I don't. It's not you even put it like that. It doesn't sound good. No, I don't think. I don't think the EU project ultimately has uh, the cohesion. I, I think it was a good idea, and it, it it worked, and it could have worked. It could have you know continued on if the world would stay the same. If the world would never change. Uh, but the world is changing, and it's, I mean, obviously, waves of immigrants because of wars, but not just wars, because of changing in the climate change, you know, changing uh, weather patterns, all that kind of stuff, and the potential for you know food shortages in different parts of the world could cause mass movements of people across borders and stuff like that. And in that case, the EU project is just doomed because it's not what it was, not what it's meant to be anymore. You know, mm. uh, you know, if, if Europe gets flooded with people from Africa, well, then I mean, by, I'm sure you can tell them all the European citizens, but they're not. They just came from Africa, you know what I mean? And the only way you could get European countries into the European project was the, was the idea of this expanded identity of being European, right? But fundamentally, that means... Uh, it fundamentally means white, right? Of some flavor, white, uh, European... Uh, roughly Christian or rough, secular... Roughly Christian, Christian, white Christians, basically. Uh, yeah. And that's that's the identity that was sold to people who joined, when they joined the European Union. That's why we can all be one big community because we're all one people. But if you bring in a bunch of, of, of people from from other, other parts of the world, as a result of you know, and one dominant language, yeah, I, I mentioned in passing that China has all these languages and all these different peoples, but more and more English one is becoming... dominant language in China yeah. or two maybe, um, Europe. It's kind of heading that well, way as well. English, French, but German. But no, all the languages are still fairly strong. Like people speak their own languages as well. Yeah. Know? Although it, English so is creeping in there. The only way it would really work, probably <clears throat> long term, is for someone to rise up and conquer the whole lot. No, or build a wall around it. Or build a wall around it. Yeah. So that's, you know, maybe get Trump over and <laughs> get him. <laughs> start. Yeah, there's an idea for a con- trade deal. Consultant. Hey, listen, so can we get these exemptions back? Yeah. If we get you, we get American construction firms to build a wall around Europe, <laughs> Fortress Europe, Alcan Fort, Fortress Europe, Fortress Russia, Fortress America, Fortress China, you know, uh, and then we can all just fight over the Middle East. Um, <laughs> well, yeah, like, as a new idea, let's all fight over the Middle East. Anyway, talking about the Middle East, yeah, Israel, mm, like, we don't want to talk about Israel, do we? Israelis are doing what they always did. And that's the one thing, it's kind of heartening. It's one thing you can always rely on, you know. It's it's a mainstay, it's there, it's it's safe, it's solid that Israel will always be periodically uh, using Palestinians as target practice, uh, you know, and killing them out of hand just for, well, because we're, well, because they're Palestinians, basically. And, I mean, then, and then when they get cut, some flack. Cut the chase, like. Or, I think they got a lot of flack, in fairness, no matter even the U.S. media, a little bit anyway, when they got flack for twice now, massacring 60-some people, on the day that the embassy opened, the yeah. U.S. embassy in Jerusalem, um, they got flack, so they switched to having their snipers just shoot them in the knee. No, but they didn't. But they Just, shoot them, just well, shoot them in the leg. Well, that's what they've been doing. They've been shooting in the legs for, for, for quite a while, but now and again, they, you know, over longer distances, maybe snipers aren't so good and bullets raise further further north and, and they're killing people but the, yeah sometimes I'm certainly there's some people who are shot in the head and stuff as well so certainly it's uh, uh, what do you I mean just call it what it is you know you've got for as long as Israel has existed it's been basically it was founded on the idea of Palestinians are our enemies uh, they want to kill us 
they want to wipe us out, we need to wipe them out before they wipe us out. And, if, uh, and, and it's a literally apartheid state. Yeah, and they have contained that, you know, certainly that, that ideology, that viciousness against Palestinians has, has spread throughout much of, of the Israeli population. And obviously in the armed forces and stuff, you know, they're treated like animals, they're seen as animals, basically a second class, certain third class, fourth class citizens for a long time. And you can't have recurring generations of that ideology that where nothing is done to to change it, to, to you know, find some kind of a reconciliation. Um, but you can't have it, you can't let it go on for that long before, you know, it really becomes entrenched and, and certainly in the armed forces and stuff. There's plenty of, of Israeli soldiers who just see Palestinians as, as all of them as terrorists and they should be shot, you know. Uh, and then you're surprised when they actually just go out and shoot them, you know. Uh, and that's what Israel has been doing. And just recently there was a girl, um, a 21-year-old girl, a Palestinian girl who's a medic actually in one of the protests mm. just recently and she was, shot in the, she was shot in the chest. She was there with a obvious medical gear on. She was going to help one of the, help one, someone, who had been, someone else who had been shot and they just shot her in the chest and killed her. Um... I don't know what, what, to say about that stuff any, what also... to say about that stuff anymore, you know? I mean, it's just what it is. I mean, it is, I, I, the one thing I wouldn't, I won't tolerate is anybody trying to quibble over it or give me some bullshit reason about, you know, why this happened. I mean, it's pr as plain as a nose in your face, you know, Israelis hate Palestinians because they've been encouraged to hate them because uh, the existence of, of, effectively, the existence of the Palestinians stands as a living testimony to the illegal nature of the foundation of the state of Israel. If the Palestinians would just disappear, then Israelis could get on with the job of creating the reality or believing more fervently that they didn't steal someone else's land, that their country isn't founded on someone else's land. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. If I go and steal someone's, I mean, if I go and steal someone's house and, and kick them all out, maybe kill a few of them and then kick, kick the rest of them out and inhabit their house, it's really annoying to me when the remaining members of the family that I stole the house from are hanging outside the window looking in, you know, and saying, you stole that house. I mean, I just want them to go away so I can live in the house. And there's an element of that from a psychological perspective of, of the viciousness of, of, of Israelis against Palestinians because they're a constant reminder mm -hmm. of the immorality of, of the, basically the, the, the state of Israel as, as, a, as a project, the foundation of the state of Israel. And talking about immigration, it's actually, I mean, you talk about the Balfour Declaration as a, as a reason, as the main reason why, uh, you know, Balfour, uh, British government gave, you know, Her Majesty's government views with favour, blah, 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 foundation of a state for the Jewish people in, in Palestine. Um, but in 1924, uh, the, US, the US passed an immigration law that basically set quotas on people coming from from Europe, because after 1924, after the First World War, in the years afterwards, there was a lot of immigration uh, to the U.S., a lot of people wanting to immigrate to, to the U.S., and the U.S. government set up a, uh, or passed a, an immigration law that effectively blocked a lot of European Jews, who at that time, not just after the Second World War, but it started in 1924, and from 1924 on then, you know, as with the rise of the Nazis and all that kind of stuff, and the problems... Uh, getting uh, increasingly worse for for Jews in uh, in Germany, obviously, um, a lot of them would have moved to the U.S., but uh, the U.S. actually prevented them. They had an anti-immigration law on the books at that time, signed in 1924, that stopped a lot of Jewish immigration from uh, Germany and European countries, Eastern Europe. 
uh, to the US and instead they all went to Israel. You know, mm -hmm. uh, so and that actually created that certainly facilitated the the motivation for the demands for we need because there's so many people, uh, so many Jews going to to Palestine. We need to have we need to formalize this. <clears throat> I, I I would say that if it's possible, we'll never know obviously, but it's possible that if the US didn't impose those immigration restrictions uh, on, I mean, there's a quote here. The bill's, the bill's co-sponsor, U.S. Representative Albert Johnson, Johnson, a Republican from Washington, said that the law would block a stream of alien blood with all its inherited misconceptions from entering America. Another co-sponsor said, those of us who are interested in keeping America stock up to the highest standard, that is, the people who were born here, uh, that, well, that's, what, that's all he said. Uh, I don't know. Then he said, Southern and Eastern Europeans, many of them Catholics and Jews, arrive sick and starving and therefore less capable of contributing to the American economy and able, unable to adapt to American culture. So that was the attitude prevailing under an official law in the US at the time uh, in the 19, late 1920s and early in, and in the 1930s. Uh, so basically, no thanks. Jews, stay away. And others, stay away. And they went to Israel. They went to Palestine. And the amount of them, the number of them that went there, eventually legitimated or legitimized the the creation, ultimately the creation of the state of Israel. So America bears a big responsibility for, for that situation as well, of the forced creation of the state of Israel on Palestinian land and everything that has ensued uh, since. And it's, I mean, it's, 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 and it's not, that's the not the only is. episode of contrived, directed migration. Mm -hmm. That's the term being used today, right, in Europe for, for the... North African and the right. Eastern refugees are coming, but the directed migration is very evident, not just in that episode, but later, of course, around World War Two. Right afterwards, absolutely, I mean, yeah. In the camps that where people survived, they had they were raising the Star of David. Right. Um, but in nineteen, yeah, nineteen, uh, in nineteen, in the late nineteen forties, during the Second World War, or after the Second World War, uh, or around that time, basically, I mean, there was a sizable population already. In Palestine, by you know then, I mean, I mean it, was, it was only three years later after the Second World War that they actually created the state of Israel in 1948. So already it was they had enough people there to st say we're a state. We need a state for these people. We need to draw borders. There was another wave did. from the USSR in the 1970s, I think, and they actually tried to stop. They also passed laws to try and stop Jews leaving the country. But then they were also trying to they were trying to stop a general brain drain out of right. the USSR to the West. Mm -hmm. But part of it included keeping specifically Jews from trying to go to Israel. Eventually that was overturned and the floodgates kind of opened, I think throughout, gradually throughout the eighties. Anyway, yeah. by the nineties, there've been like 1.5 or so million new arrivals mm -hmm. from by Russia. then former Soviet countries. Right. So there are these contrived episodes mm -hmm. like throughout and you, you wonder like what the hand is behind that because the majority of Jews still don't live in Israel. Right. And they never, they probably have no intention of ever going there. It's an open invitation at all times. Any Jew anywhere is entitled to just walk into an embassy or consulate anywhere in the world and just say, I'm Jewish. And it's a very low threshold for what considered one or two grandparents, I'm not sure. And uh, uh, you're, you're an Israeli citizen. Uh, right on the spot, <clears throat> they give you a passport that day. One of the criteria is a uh, fork in the sugar bowl. 
fork, a fork and a sugar bowl in your house. That's one of the criteria. No, but they also get money. They get money for uh, for going there. I mean, okay. You get you get a, you get, a, you get up, set up. You up get relocation and set up uh, set up money for going. For, uh, what's are, it called? Uh, Al Aliyah, Alaya. Alaya. To make Aliyah. Yeah, return to the homeland, right? Yeah. Of 3,000 years from his blah, 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 blah. The vast majority have no interest with all these great incentives. One case actually happened last week, a high profile case. Uh, in, and they it, it said, said, this is where I discovered how easy it is to just walk into a consulate and say, I'm Jewish, right? You're an Israeli citizen. Mm -hmm. Here's your passport. It happened to Roman Abramovich. Right. He's the Russian, now Israeli actually Jewish tycoon owner of Chelsea Football Club in London, where he's been one of the Russian oligarchs right. for the last 15 years now at this mm. point in London. He he's There's something going on with him where he's been most favoured tycoon, Russian. One of them, yeah. One of them in London up to now, but somebody is tampering with his visa renewal, mm -hmm. and this spurred him to realize something was a foot he was he was going to get kicked out of the uk he was going to wasn't going to be able possibly to stay there. and lose assets or something so he, he he's his counter move was to walk into the consulate in st petersburg or something and become an israeli citizen last week right and then go back to go back to london and say and then come back to london as an israeli citizen but i saw something i didn't find it again that um some i think somebody was commenting on and saying it may not be so simple for even Normally, Israeli citizens have you can come to the UK no problem and work, mm. but in his case, I think that there's a snag in that plan. Anyway, so yeah, that that shows us like how easy it is, but uh, yeah, it also makes you wonder well, why don't why don't they? What what are all those millions? I think it's three million Jews at least still in the United States. And many of them so vociferous in the support for Israel. Well, why aren't you doing a bit? Why aren't you going over there? Yeah, it's it's this bizarre thing where they they can be the most nationalist on behalf of Israeli interests and the most spiteful about Palestinians or Muslims. Mm -hmm. Period. Uh, they, they, but they're never going to like walk the walk and actually go to Israel and live that. Yeah. Instead, they're. It's uh, just... said they just inflamed the situation from the United States and send money into it, mm -hmm. send weapons, of course, via the, their lobby. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm just looking at uh, just you got me interested there in terms of uh, Jews by population. Mm. Yeah, most are in the U.S., Canada, more so than in Israel, Russia, France. No, I don't think more so than in Israel, obviously. But anyway, yeah, I'm just looking on, on the internet, sir. Um, I think Israel still has the highest, maybe it's population. I don't know. Israel has the highest absolute number, but globally. Four, it's 14 and a half million total. The world Jewish population. Right. And six and a half million in Israel. That's not even half. Right. After all, right, this but there's time. no other, yeah. So, the re, there's more, yeah, there is more, there's more around the world than there is in Israel, yeah. It, it think about that the Zionist cause, the ideal, this, the, the, this, right. this beautiful dream they created still can't attract a majority of the people it's supposed but why to. Why would you like? Why would you? I know, but I mean, that's so, interesting. It hasn't a attracted a majority yet. Well, it's, yeah, I know, but well, it's amazing to me that it's attracted that many, the many, and that people are still going. It's a country perpetually at war. 
You know, what kind of people does that attract? People who, I mean, all things being equal are in a, in a fairly decent enough position in some other developed country around the world. And what kind of person would say, I'm going to go up and go to Israel where there's a war going? Why would you want to go there? And even the ones that go and become settlers, you know, they explicitly leave the US, for example, or European country and go to set themselves up on a piece of land that illegally you know, on Palestinian land and, and build houses and carry a, an M16 or a, <clears throat> a rifle, you know, a machine gun in case because Palestinians might come and get us. Why would you? I mean, imagine and uprooting their families to go there. You talk about there's problem with mentality. There's a certain mentality there that's problematic big time, you know, and then you wonder why the thing is so, so screwed up. Like, um, Anyway, uh, we have. I'm just looking at our pictures here, and uh, we've done Italy and Trump and Kim Jong Un and Juncker and China. There's one woman, two people on here, two faces on here that I don't know who the hell they are. One of them is uh, one of them is this older lady, bit uh, rotund, uh, censored. Who's that? That's Roseanne Barr. What's her story? <laughs> Roseanne Barr. Uh, I remember her from the, uh, what was it called, the show? Was it just called Roseanne or something? I used to watch it, actually. Yes. It was just called Roseanne. Roseanne, her him name, and, her real name. Yeah, him and uh, her and the funny guy. Who played her John husband. Goodman. John Goodman played her husband, yeah. It was a funny show, actually. I used to watch it when I was when I was younger. Than I am now. Um, well, they restarted it after right. 20 years. Right, yeah, because it was a good thing back then. I'm not surprised they restarted uh, with the same cast, yeah. But Roseanne has... Um, her mouth tends to run away, right? A la Trump, time to time. That's a that's a problem. And uh, she loves. She's a big fan of Twitter, right? She was a comedian, stand up comic before, right? Acting. She was very funny. Um, definitely, still still is funny in some respects. But she became a lot more serious as she got older. Mm. Political views, just saying what she thought about everything and anything, um, to the point where she was actually active last decade, about two thousand and. Late 2000s, she was a member of the Green Party, and I think she ran as a candidate, maybe in 2008. For president? Yeah. Yeah. I think so. Um, very involved, like, activist, yada, yada. And, and what's she doing on our page? Well, she got into a storm, like, yes, it was last week. Basically, their show got cancelled on a dime. The, return, the, the reboot of yeah. her... Roseanne. The thing is, it was the most successful show in its time. Mm -hmm. After one season, with a hiatus of 20 years, it was the most successful show on the network this year. Mm. And it was, But it was cancelled over one tweet. A tweet that said A tweet that uh, Roseanne she, posted on Twitter saying obviously on Twitter. She was She was referring she to a former Obama aide called Valerie Jarrett. Yeah. Uh, she said that she looked like A cross between Something from like something from the Iranian, the Iranian, the Muslim Brotherhood and Planet, Planet of, of the, the Apes. Apes. There you go. I think I saw that actually. Muslim Brotherhood and Planet of the Apes. And that's okay. So that's, that's, she really went for gold there. That's double. That, that's double. That's two, two, two for one. That's a two for. <laughs> I mean, because that's discriminating against. Muslim immigrants, from the American perspective, it would be seen that way, and it's racist against against uh, um, black people because this one was black, I'm presuming, right? Yeah, although right. it's not quite obvious, not to me anyway. No, I think, but she is. Yeah, she is at least part African -American. American. So, and so comparing her to a monkey, Planet of the Apes, and right. then 
and also a Muslim. So she's a, so she's a, a so she's a Muslim. No, no. Okay. So it was just a, it was a throwaway dismissal or a throwaway jibe at Muslims in general. It was an extremely pointed jibe to make about anyone. But this isn't just anyone. This is someone who is caught up in something. She used to be an aide for Obama. I think right. in Chicago before. So it's in the context of Ro- in the context of Roseanne's pro-Trump feelings, she wanted right. to attack Obama and all the stuff that's going on because there's a lot of stuff going on with Obama. <clears throat> I'm sorry, with with Trump and the Trump investigation, the collusion, all that exactly. kind of stuff coming out now that is the, supposedly the focus is is being uh, or the light is being shown on the Obama administration, what they were doing, and it's you know they're all going to be in jail by you know uh, before Christmas, uh, supposedly Obama, Hillary. You know, all of the officials, they're all going to jail. No, but that's that's the way it's kind of being presented. But it certainly, you know, because they opened this new, there's a new uh, investigation, basically, uh, by the Senate Intelligence Committee or something like that, or some, some kind of investigation that has been yeah. opened into who, whether or not people were spying on Trump. Whether it was, <laughs> The thing that they've been uh, talking about for all of Trump's presidency, basically, amongst accusing him of colluding with Russia and stuff, and the thing that he's been firing back with that he was being spied on. Well, now they're actually getting around. Jeez, it kind of we, these wheels turn super slow. It bores the hell out of me. Uh, it's so predictable, you know. Okay, I can see where this is going. You know, it's eventually going to get to the point. Hopefully, it'll get to the point where it'll be, be, be a bit more balance and the Russia collusion nonsense will be dismissed and. And there might be some light shone on what was actually going on that give rise to that bogus Trump's in bed with Russian hookers or something, you know? So uh, it was in that context that Roseanne made this tweet, basically. She's been making a load of them. A load She's of them. on but Twitter. That's part of the... But this particular one was supposedly crossed the line and right. the, the network and the producers of the show, ABC and someone else, cancelled the show right. that very day. Now that's that is unusual though. Mm-hmm. It's one thing to fire a particular person. It's one thing to warn them, mm. find them. I don't know what, but the whole show is cancelled. Well, they have to cancel the show if they fire her. Mm, well, it's called Roseanne. Like, like fire the lead. It the, is. The, it, the her lead name character. is. Like, apparently, she's not. It's not so much centered around her right. because she's sixty five. A, a bunch now. of other characters. Yeah. It's it, most of the story has apparently been taking place around the next generation of her kids. Right. And that she's relatively cameo so they'll probably reboot, this time. They'll reboot it without her. Maybe. Maybe not. I mean, so far, they just simply cancelled it. But yeah. the reason why it's interesting, because it was it was a racist thing to say. Yeah. But it's interesting because she is is so identified with being pro-Trump. Right. She's a high-profile figure. Right. And the show went out of its way to present, like, her as ordinary... Uh, yeah, her as pro-Trump. Right. And that obviously rang true with people, right. and they made it the most popular show. Right. Which is unheard of, like for right. something to come back after two decades. So you have to wonder if the, sh- you know, they didn't have the knife sharpened and ready for something. Oh, there's our chance, and then they nixed it. Right. You know, because they don't just let go of the best viewed show of the year mm. so quickly like that. Well, political, and, clerk, political correctness, and uh, you know, will will uh, people will sacrifice a lot of money for? To be seen as politically correct, it seems these days, you know. The thing is, she Roseanne Barr. She says the strangest things sometimes. She, she is like pretty woke, clued in, um, and has been for a long time. Uh, I found an interview with her on Abby Martin's show back when she was with RT America. So that must be at least four years ago. Um, it was kind of it was a rambling 
interview. She wasn't really looking at the camera. She mm. seemed a bit out of it. To be She's honest. a bit loopy. But uh, she talked about MK Ultra, mm. and not kind of you know weird stuff. She just made the simple point that that kind of thing was being done to American people over a couple of generations, messing with people's head to the point where it they essentially stopped empath. They they began to attack victims always ended up empathizing with the real perpetrators behind the scenes, usually powerful people. And she, she finished that rant by mm. saying, um, even specifically said that the basic problem, especially in the United States, is the psychopaths are in power mm. and they've run rampant with greed. I mean, so she totally gets what's going on. But then Although, she can say the most insane things about Palestinians or Muslims. We were just talking about uh, Ali earlier on. They're about Delia to right. Israel. Well, there's uh, I'm just on uh, there's a website here. I mean, for no reason. It's actually well, it's actually I've, I was going to say I have no reason to to disbelieve what it says, but uh, I think it's probably pretty on, on the money because it uh, it's from a website United with Israel dot <clears throat> org, and it's the title is Roseanne Barr. I want to move to Israel, and this is from April thirtieth this year, so like a little over a month ago. I want to move to Israel and run for prime minister. I do have that fantasy. If God calls me, I'll go. So, uh, she's she's not always been so pro-Israel. She's Jewish, of course. She's she's Russian slash Eastern European Jewish immigrants, going back two generations. Um, it's because Trump moved the the the. She's totally suckered by Trump. Nah. That's the problem. And not in this article, you know. You think? Yeah, just look at the article again. Uh, I want to make a lead. I do. And before all the stuff is sold, all the real estate, I still have this fantasy of being an old Jewish lady living in the Jewish homeland. <clears throat> I want to buy a farm there and maybe bring my family. And then I want to thank you on behalf of my mother. She's talking to um, about Trump here. I want to thank you on behalf of my mother and all the Jewish people for moving the embassy to Jerusalem. A lot of presidents have promised it, and I got it done. Okay, so that sounds like a radical Zionist Jew, right? And well, she, she said she Jew. said that to Trump, and he responded that a lot of presidents have promised it, and I got it done. And she said she believes it's the first step towards peace in the world. I really do. Is that the end of it, though? She also tweeted last week about um, Soros and his Nazi collaboration when he was still in Hungary. Yeah. Um, she's also on record talking about Rothschild banking domination. Isn't that the classic, you know, anti-Semitic trope? Why are we she, even talking about her? Because she's in the news. All right. So she's a, she's a bit of a crazy person. Oh, she's okay. She's a bit of a lightning rod for stuff that's going on. Yeah. And considering what's going on in the United States, you know, Trump, Russia Gate, all these things are not being said. Mm. She's she's a relatively at least the scripted Roseanne that was on TV the one right. that the one that was vetted not the one that tweets weird right. stuff was a relatively conservative voice and it was popular with people and mm -hmm. they've just axed it and that's that that's that's my problem with the, that's my problem with the with the Trump supporters because I mean it seems that a lot of them are like Roseanne okay so Roseanne's Jewish but I think a lot of conservatives are. Probably a lot of conservatives don't give a damn about Israel, but if they were forced to have an opinion, they would say, well, we support Israel because, you know, it's Israel and we're Christians and uh, Israel's sort of Christian 
except they're Jewish, whatever, Jewish, Christian, Christian, Jewish. It's all the same thing, right? Yahweh, God, Jesus, the I end, don't know, whatever. The end times. Sounds about the same, sounds more or less the same thing to me. Anyway, anyway, it's all Christianity of some form, so they're our friends, and they're surrounded by Muslims. So that's my problem with the, with the right-wingers, you know, the conservatives, and, and why uh, we can never... I suppose well, it's it's not it's not surprising that we, that anybody would say or that any sane person would say that I can't join any extremist uh, kind of faction or I can't side with any uh, with the far right or the far left or any right you know strongly held kind of blinkered closed mind opinions that do not move basically because well it's basically it was fundamentally stupid <laughs> and intellectual let's say you got to be able to think think about these things and and see the the nuances and see what's going on in society and. Um, and try and analyze it a bit and not get caught up in it. The point is not to get caught up in anything. Yeah. You know, you don't want to get caught in a, you know, in any current, basically. You want but to observe what's going on. The, the, this actress got caught up. She's not always been mm. like this. Right. She's been plenty critical of Israel. She right. she used to have her own t uh, radio show. She interviewed Miko Paled, for God's sake. Right. The, the former Israeli uh, he, I mean, he, soldier, yeah. Yeah, former Israeli soldier. Basically, he spits out the, the simple truth about Israel. It's racist. It's apartheid. It was a bad idea. If it really wants to be a democracy, it needs a major change. Right. And this is the guy whose grandfather was the Zionist founder of Israel. Right. And he has a big truck with those Jews in America who are critical of, of Israel. So she was once listening to him, talking to him, discussing with him. You know, I think something's changed. So mm. it's a relatively recent thing. She... in. Her defense for making the racist tweet about Valerie Jarrett last week was mm. that I was an Ambien, which is like hardcore yeah. drug. Some kind of painkiller. <laughs> she or is prescribed for it's painkiller. I think it's sleepy, sleepy helps you go to sleep. Uh, Oxygen in the forum are in the chat room said Shakira canceled her show in Israel recently. There you go. There, are, there are there are other things. Natalie happening. Portman. Natalie Portman. People are waking up. Out. Well, it's a mixed bag. Israel, yeah. Israel's so flagrantly shooting people in the head in front of cameras. Yeah. The whole world sees it. They're shooting themselves in the foot at the same time. But then there's also big symbolic things happening, like the the, the embassy move yeah. right next to it, same day. Right. That's, a, that's, a, that's a big up for, for Israel and what and it's doing, right? It can pull this kind of person that way, that kind of person the other way. And the Nick, same person can be pulled each way depending on here's a good question. The time of year. Here's a good question. Nikki Haley, which I may have to... I'm, I'm going to get a hold of this fish here because... I may feel the need to hit something with it when I talk about Nikki Haley, but Nikki Haley uh, was at the UN recently. Um, well, she's never out of it, right? She's she's like a hanging around like a bad she's, smell. But she uh, humiliated herself basically recently at the UN. I mean, that's the way it looks to me, anyway. <clears throat> where she uh, there was a a UN vote, a UN resolution to condemn. They're kind of a resolution to protect the Palestinian people, basically, because of the stuff that's been going on with the shootings and the Israeli soldiers killing Palestinians. And she vetoed it. She was the only one to veto it. And then she she tabled her own kind of amendment uh, that, uh, you know, was a watered down, you know, just basically blaming Hamas. Both sides she calmed down. Blaming, no, no, not no, blaming no, Hamas for everything. And, and asserting Israel's right to defend itself. And she was the only one who had her hand up to support it. <laughs> Pretty pathetic on both counts, you know what I mean? She was the only one with her hand up, one to say no, Palestinians should not be uh, protected, and then the only one to put her hand up and say Israel should be allowed to continue to do this, basically. My question is, what the hell is going on? What is the relationship? And uh, it's a kind of a rhetorical question. What, why is there that level of support 
for Israel on an international stage, public support, you know, very and very in your face, like, I mean, willing to stand out, stick your stick your neck out there in that way and, and you know, look like you're on your own, basically. You're the only one who supports Israel. You're the only one saying, no, it's okay for Israel to shoot those Palestinians because Hamas. You know, just ridiculous stuff, you know. I mean, really embarrassing yourself if you're a sane person. Uh, and I suppose the answer, at least my answer, is that Israel is a... It's nothing to do with, at least from at a political level, it's nothing to do with, uh, you know, protecting the Jewish people or any of the bullshit that is spouted by Western politicians. It's simply, or American politicians, it's simply that Israel is a little outpost for America. The only actually piece of land, of significant land, in a very strategic place that America more or less owns or has a partner owning it, like Israel is its best buddy forever. And from a geopolitical perspective, Israel is very important to America in terms of, you know, its influence in the world and maintaining its influence in the world and particularly maintaining its influence in the Middle East. That America sees Israel effectively as a 52nd state, 51st state, whatever. Um, and that's why it supports, that's why you have this, I mean, it's filters down to the population, but at, at the top level of political support, for Israel, undying support for Israel, that that is, that it's geopolitical considerations that that um, that inform it. I mean, that's being, that's maybe being thinking that these people are practical about it, that they're not right. influenced by ideology. Well, maybe they, some of them are. I always, I, when I hear someone talk about ideology, I always think that they're bullshitting. Mm -hmm. I, always th I always think that that's a narrative, you know? It's because I believe in this or I believe in that. No, you've got, an, you've got a, another more practical reason behind that as to why you're doing it. Maybe you don't even know about it. But there is a practical reason why you're doing that, why you're why you're taking that course. Okay, let's assume there's something practical. Let's then extend the question. Why at this time is the friendship, the alliance with Israel strengthened like never before, while the other alliances are being broken up? Obviously, Europe as a whole, but that includes the UK as well. Mm. I mean... Yeah, the extent to which they're being broken up. Yeah, I mean, it, we have a bit of a ways to go to really sour the relationship. And remember that Trump is possibly only the president for four years. What happens afterwards? You know, I mean, is this? I mean, maybe we shouldn't be too much focused on Trump and what he's done in the past number of months or whatever, uh, with the whole you know distancing himself from Europe and you know go everybody going their own way, their own separate ways, and trade wars and tariffs and stuff. I mean, can that all change back? And can a, I think, a special uh, relationship be re-established once he's out of the picture? I think the Europeans hope, a lot of them hope that can be. Yeah. I've heard I've heard one of them say, actually, yeah. someone in Germany, that let's just, wait let's just see if we can wait out four years. Mm. But they could be in for a surprise because Trump could win again. Yeah, and then another four years, that would be, yeah, that would be too much to take, um, probably. I mean, because a lot of economic damage can be done or an economic souring. Souring of economic relationships can happen in a few short years, you know, and new economic realities have to take take uh, take place or manifest on the ground where you start basically well if i if i'm not selling to you anymore then i'm going to find new new customers uh and uh and that's a new reality i'm not if you come back to me later and say oh you know can you be my, can i can you sell to me again i'm sorry I've, I've got new new contracts you know so it's, it's there's a certain possibility for a for a real kind of clean final break from an economic perspective because Diplomatic level, you can call each diplomats can call each other all sorts of names and you know talk shit about each other publicly and say all sorts of mean things, but it doesn't matter. You know, you just take that in the chin and it's just words. You know, 
But when it comes to economics and you actually implement economic policies, that's where it really hurts, you know, and that's where you really sour relationships, you know, and really change things, can really change things, like I said, because you have to do something to replace the lost econ- uh, the lost economic contracts or connections that you, you've had uh, with your former commander-in-chief. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah. So I don't know. Um, I suppose we'll have to wait and see, as usual. Yeah. Anyway, um, one last question for you. Yeah. Where's MBS? Ah, he's hanging out in a hammam. Um, I don't know. It's starting to look suspicious. I did he not? He showed his big hairy head on on the. There's, the Saudi press agency has put out now three or four photos and some footage. This meant to say, no, he's fine. Maybe he is. But people have checked it, and they've either been able to show that it predates this the date of this apparent shooting. Yeah. That took place around the palace Shoot. in Riyadh in mid-April. Shooting down the drone. That's what they said they were doing. They were all firing at this drone that shouldn't have been there in the airspace. But people have connected that incident with his alleged his disappearance slash death. Yeah. And the one piece of video footage also, and it's not just been like discussed online. It's the the mainstream is talking about it too. There's been a few articles I've seen them. Um, mm-hmm. Either a couple poo pooed it and said, "No, he's fine." But then others said, actually, each of those photos or video footage of him, we've tried to verify them, and we cannot say that they've taken place in the last month. Well, there's nothing in the media about it. You search for nope. Mohammed bin, bin uh, Salman, um, and uh, there's no, there's no, nobody question, nobody, no, there's nobody wondering where he is at all. Um, no, hang on now. No, I, but I, I read a, a an op-ed in the Spectator, wondering about this. Yeah, I mean, it's not across the media. Basically, it's not big news. Where, uh, uh, certainly not in the Western Western press, you know. No. Haaretz has an article, whatever you know, that kind of thing. But nobody's kind of there's no conspiracy theorizing going on that he's that he's dead, which is strange, you know, because. But then, did you were you keeping enough? Were you keeping close enough track of him no. to know that he never had a month-long no. hiatus or disappearance before? No, but he is a publicity hog, and he has been since yeah. the major, basically the coup that took place when he put his father in power yeah. and became effective ruler of the country. Mm. Uh, he went on this big tour of the United States, met you know Google executive, Facebook, right. Twitter. Uh, but maybe that took so much out of him, he had to go for a month's holiday afterwards. I don't know. There's another little piece of data. Pompeo has been in Saudi Arabia since then. Right. That's confirmed. He had a meeting with the MBS. Go- the ghost of MBS. There's no there's no photos or footage of that meeting. Very mysterious. I need to get Sherlock Holmes on it, but I don't really buy the, the drone thing. Right. That's cover for something. Because mm. that footage was online and that was a serious shootout. Well, yeah, but you didn't. You just heard the shots. Uh, he didn't see anything or see any drones. No. He started, but, but certainly it sounded like there were a load of people letting off gunfire. It sounded more like a kind of a raid or an attack, you know, uh, uh, this is a, on someone because... Uh, <laughs> this is a country where apparently dozens of royals have been strung up and tortured yeah. in a massive shakedown. Something, something went down there. The drone, the drone story is, uh, I call bullshit in the drone story because, um, uh, <clears throat> I mean... <laughs> Well, it came close to his compound, you know, his, his palace, basically, right? 
Surely there's guards there, right? They might have probably an odd pair of binoculars lying around, right? A drone comes in, you see a flashing light, you look up, you see a drone. You know, um, it's a drone. Does it have any bombs on it? Don't think so. It just looks like a drone. Uh, it shouldn't be here. Find out whose it is. Right, exactly. Or, you know, whatever. But no, who, who freaks out when a drone flies Instead, over your house? Instead, 20 guards start 20 guards setting automatic. Right, yeah. AK-47's up in this guy, you know. But then they tend to do that in Saudi Arabia just for, for the crack now and again, you know, for the fun of it, you know. Um, so it could have been that. I mean, just having a party, you know. MBS was having a party with uh, a load of, you know, camels. Or... Uh, anyway. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. Um, just... Go on. Tommy, Tommy, oh, geez, not Tommy Robinson. What's well, he doing there? Tommy Robinson is in prison. Good. For another year. See you later, Tommy. But what about free speech? Free speech. Look, the guy was... The guy was sentenced last year for contempt of court for filming outside an ongoing jury trial and commenting on it and posting on a Facebook, live streaming to Facebook. He said, don't do that because when you, you're basically acting as, as a media representative. You're, you're publishing this publicly, ongoing, and you're making prejudicial comments about the court case. Any member of the jury could see that, and we might have to call, call a mistrial, and the whole thing will fall apart, and the victims here who are being represented would, would not get justice because you want to mouth off on Facebook. And he was told that. And he was on, on, he's on probation, I think, because he didn't get sentenced for that, but he got he got suspended, oh, a sentence. suspended sentence. Yeah, if it happened probation, again, sentence. And then, so then he go, and he know, yeah. If it happens again, you're going to jail. So then there's another grooming a, a grooming gang, one of these grooming gangs, or you know, that prey on young girls, whatever, you know, and, and they're they're Pakistani or they're Indian, whatever. He's up in arms about it, and the trial is ongoing, and the people in the courthouse, the families of the of the girls who were groomed, are seeking justice against the guys. He's outside live streaming to Facebook again, doing exactly the same thing again. And so the police come and arrest him. And sorry, you basically violated the terms of your suspended sentence. You're going to jail. And what, everybody is meant to be up in arms? Just shut the hell up. I mean, it's something too contrived about it. Like, what? it's a publicity stunt by him, and he's paying the price for it if he's going to jail for, what, three months, 13 months? A year, I think. A year. But he's an idiot. I mean, how can he advocate for I mean, first of all, he was threatening the, 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 the court case effect of the jury trial where the, the families of, the, of the, the, the victims of the grooming gang were seeking justice, and he could have ruined that basically for them, and they, they wouldn't have gotten any justice at all. They may have, those guys could have got off because the jury was influenced by Tommy Robinson live streaming outside the court, courthouse, and they could say, this jury is no good, we have to throw this jury out and start again, you know, and prolong the, 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 the process for the victims' families and the victims themselves. And, and secondly... So he doesn't give a damn about them, really. I mean, you have to conclude that he doesn't really care about them. He's not care. He's not concerned about the court case and and, and their their attempt, attempt to get justice. And secondly, what good is he in jail if he thinks he's any good? Why would he disappear? I mean, is it is it worth it just to have everybody oh free Tommy Robinson, uh, you know, free speech, blah 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 blah? Look, the law is the law, you know, and it's pretty clear. And this isn't some kind of like Orwellian draconian law. It's a pretty clear law. You're not mm. allowed to, in any way, prejudice a jury in a trial. Yeah. And he went ahead and did it twice. It's actually meant to protect rights, right. but it's being, people are up in arms about it as a fundamental, uh, supposedly injustice against his basic right to freedom of speech, but it's freedom of speech, the, ju get, the, the get judge it. was right when he said, 
freedom of speech isn't just an unlimited thing for right. any one person. And you don't get to write the laws, you know? You don't get to redefine or re re rewrite the laws yourself, you know? Yeah. <sighs> whatever. Anyway, Tommy, yeah, whatever. Grooming, yeah, sure. You know, it's Brexit. It's, you know, right-wing nationalism in the UK. It's Little Englanders. It's the British National Party. It's English Defence League. It's people like Tommy Robinson and stuff who have a certain validity to the things they say but there are these gangs and yeah. people are apparently the system is apparently people who form part of the system together they have been reluctant to look at this right for so long yeah there's a, there's something to be dealt with there but you know i mean and maybe he thinks that this is why he can highlight that that problem you know but i just you know i don't trust that tommy robinson the person that he is in his background and stuff that he's actually that that things he claims to be interested in or want to want to represent or stand up for that that's really what what he's after you know that that's really his motivation you know so yeah we're gonna leave there for this week folks i hope you can hear me say that we will be back next week on another show we hope you uh, have a good evening and thanks to our chatters and all the rest of the good stuff see you next see week see you everyone. later bye bye